ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. The federal government shutdown is now entering its third week. The dispute over federal funding for President Donald Trump's border wall has furloughed hundreds of thousands of federal employees. An estimated 320,000 federal employees across agencies are in leave from work without pay. In Indiana, that includes members of the U.S. Forest Service. Hello. You have reached the National Forest. The office is closed at this time. We are on furlough due to lapse in government funding. Please leave a voicemail so that we can return your call when we get funding restored. Thank you. The Hoosier National Forest is maintained by the U.S. Forest Service, who, as you've just heard on their answering machine, have been furloughed by the government shutdown. The Hoosier, which spans over 200,000 acres across southern Indiana's Rolling Hills is one of the handful of protected areas in the state which are administered by the federal employees. Currently, there's no sign of a federal budget being passed in the near future. On Friday, President Trump announced the shutdown could last months, or even years. That poses a problem for the Hoosier, according to Indiana Forest Alliance Conservation Director Dr. Ray Schnapp. I think the forest can manage itself at least for a while, certainly, but there are questions about whether there might be such a thing as timber rustling uh, during this time when nobody's paying attention. Illegal timber harvest, in other words. Somebody needs to be paying attention, and probably neighbors would be the first to notice. So I would say like, it would be a good idea for neighbors to be especially vigilant. There aren't that many neighbors in uh, state forests territory, but there certainly are some people with inholdings and, you know, land adjacent to the public land. Beyond stopping illegal logging in the forest, Dr. Schnapp says the Forest Service is also in charge of managing the Hoosier National Forest. She says that can mean a couple of different things. Management for control of invasive species seems pretty important because um, once they get established, it's really hard to get rid of them, but they sometimes use management as a euphemism for timber harvest, and those are not really necessary in any sense. I think the forest is okay on that score, but there are lots of questions, again, about people who might take advantage of the opportunity, thinking that no one's looking, that they could go in and harvest timber for themselves or other sorts of nefarious activities that might take place. The government shutdown comes after the Forest Service announced in November that they're considering logging some 4,000 acres of the Hoosier National Forest. Environmental watchdogs like the Indiana Forest Alliance and Friends of Lake Monroe have balked at the proposal, which is being called a form of forest management. 
Part of that proposal includes the clear-cutting of over 400 acres south of Lake Monroe in an area called Houston South. Dr. Schnapp echoed concerns by the Indiana Forest Alliance and Friends of Lake Monroe about the impact of clear-cutting within the Lake Monroe watershed. Well, the Lake Monroe watershed is the water supply for many people in southern Indiana, but also the Lake Monroe is a recreational water body, very popular for recreational use. And this watershed is particularly vulnerable to uh, soil erosion. So when they clear-cut and denude the slopes, then there is greatly increased opportunity for soil erosion to occur. And especially in areas where you have highly erodible soils that are known to um, be impacted. Lake Monroe is Indiana's largest reservoir. U.S. Forest Service proposals to log thousands of acres in the Hoosier National Forest have been put on hold, at least until the agency receives its federal budget allocation and resumes normal operations. Three weeks into the government shutdown, national parks are also starting to close. The public has been getting free access since there are no employees to collect entrance fees. There also aren't any staff to perform important maintenance and upkeep for the parks. So with the overflowing trash cans and toilets posing a threat to human health and safety, many national parks are shutting down. In the nation's oldest national park, Yellowstone, local businesses are pitching in, paying park staff to keep parts of it open. Between 20 to 30,000 people a month visit Yellowstone in wintertime. Even though the temperatures regularly drop below zero this time of year, the park is blanketed in snow, and that is a big attraction. A recent report by the Union of Concerned Scientists states that at least 7 million Americans living near a military site could be exposed to unsafe levels of PFAS. These toxic chemicals are found in military firefighting foam used to fight active fires and in training exercises. The per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, have seeped into drinking water in and around those military bases. PFAS compounds are linked to such health risks as cancer, fetal disorders, and liver damage, as well as immune, reproductive, and hormonal dysfunction. Documents obtained through a Freedom of Information request showed PFAS levels exceeding established safe thresholds at 130 of 131 U.S. military sites. In 2018, half of the new cars sold in Norway were either all-electric or hybrid electric. This makes Norway the world's third largest market for EVs after the U.S. and China. Norway has national incentives for EVs. They don't add import or sales taxes to the price of EVs and exempt them from tolls and parking costs. Electricity for Norway's EVs is generated from hydropower. Norway has already met its carbon dioxide emissions goals submitted to the Paris Accord. Norway has a history of forward-thinking public policy around energy and infrastructure. Decades ago, After the discovery of oil in the North Sea, Norway took the view that the oil would not last forever. The country decided to make as many improvements to their infrastructure as possible while they had oil income. For example, they dug the Laerdal 
tunnel over 15 miles long to connect the city of Bergen with Oslo. 1,000 vehicles per day use the tunnel rather than needing a ferry crossing or traveling over mountains, which can be hazardous in the winter. There are over 1,000 tunnels in Norway, many collecting, connecting small, isolated communities. And I'm Don Guerra. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. Hi, I'm Jenny Donegan, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite hikes over at Lake Griffey, which is what I call the dam side. You've just got to try it. So, um, well, it's amazing at sunset. And so some friends and I, we would take our yoga mats, and meet just about an hour before sunset. If you're not familiar with the dam side, it is Dunn Road. You take over across, over towards Lake Griffey, and there's a parking lot. There's the old water treatment plant is on the left side, and on the right is a parking lot. So you park there, get there about an hour before sunset, I recommend. It's really nice to take your shoes off and go through the water at the dam, and it's kind of special. And then as you're in the water, you can turn and look towards the dam, and you can see the sun setting and the color in the sky. And it's kind of just a nice taking stock, you know, take a moment. Sometimes we just don't take pause in our life. And it's a real nice opportunity to just take a pause, see the beautiful sun setting, and feel the cool water on your feet. Hiking across, you come to really beautiful wooden staircase, through the through the trees and um, you come up that staircase and then across and then it just opens up to this most gorgeous vista. It reminds me of when I was a little girl summering on the coast of Maine because it's got those little inlets and that little trees dotting the, uh, the coast. So you get this beautiful view and then if you go up towards the left there's a small plateau where you can hang out in the trees there and roll out your yoga mat. If you're so adventurous, you can go on, uh, continue on that hiking trail, and it goes down along the water and then cuts back into a, an inlet area that is shallow and filled with the most amazing geodes. Just so many geodes. It's crazy. It's just a fun, fun place for the rock hound and you to go crazy. So I highly recommend that. And, um, yeah, that's the dam side of Lake Griffey. It's super special. Most everybody needs to set aside an hour to truly enjoy the area and take the time to be in nature mm -hmm. and not rush. Who wants to rush? Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. And let's get out and hike. Next up, WFHB's Norm Holy discusses the impact of climate change on bird migration with Purdue wildlife ecologist Dr. John Dunning.
is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I am interviewing Dr. John Dunning. He is a professor of wildlife ecology in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue University. He is going to talk today about the relationship between climate change and bird migration patterns. I understand that you do a field trip in the very early spring. What are you seeing in terms of the waterfowl migration? Yeah, well, I've been here at Purdue for a little over 20 years. I arrived in 1994, so I guess it's more like 24 years. And most of that time, I've led the field trips for our local Audubon Society. When I first started here with these field trips, every March we would schedule a spring waterfowl field trip just to run around to various wetlands in our area and try to see as many ducks and geese and related species. We now find that we have to have that field trip in late February because the winters have been so mild that the waterfowl are migrating earlier. Basically, they're held back by frozen water. They will start to migrate as soon as everything begins to thaw, and that has happened to thawing uh, earlier and earlier. Have you noticed much in terms of population, either advancing or retreating, of the waterfowl? Well, the really dramatic thing there in terms of changes in population numbers has been with geese. This is true for all of Indiana. It used to be that there were several species of geese that were really rare. If we found a group of five snow geese, for instance, in our area, that was a big deal 20 years ago. Waterfowl are changing their migratory paths in a number of ways. And in the last, say, 10 years, greater white-fronted geese, snow geese, even Ross's geese, which is supposed to be a western species entirely, have been showing up more and more in our area in large numbers. When I say large numbers, I mean tens of thousands in in southern Indiana. We just had a flock of a thousand or more greater white-fronted geese spend a couple of days here at one of our best wetlands, Celery Bog, just in the last couple of days. Numbers like that were just unheard of a couple of decades ago. The peak numbers have been more like 20 to 25 to 30,000. So many, many more geese moving through our area, but earlier and earlier. And what's the situation with the Sandhill Crane? The peak around here was around Thanksgiving time, but now they seem to sort of dribble through the winter. One of the biggest wildlife spectacles, we don't have to limit it to just birds, you can experience here in Indiana is to either go to Goose Pond or up closer to us, Jasper Pulaski Wildlife Area, in the late fall and go to what are called staging areas where Sandhill Cranes pause in their migration for a number of weeks, feed on the waste grain that's found out in our agricultural areas and then come in in the late afternoon to these couple of locations and hang out before they go to their roost sites. Still large numbers of cranes, but they're staying later and later. The cranes in Jasper Pulaski, they feed in the surrounding agricultural fields, but they come to that wildlife management area because it's a safe place for them to spend the night. There's a big marsh. After congregating in this big field where there's an observation tower and you can see them all, right as the last light disappears in the evening, they quietly move over into this marsh and spend the night there. Presumably it's a safe place because if there's a coyote or a bobcat wandering around, splashing in the water, the cranes can hear them coming. They'll stay there as long as uh, there's open water. Once the marsh freezes, then it's not safe and they have to move south. 
increasingly in the mild winters that we've been having. The marsh stays open all winter, and so we end up with five, six, ten thousand cranes in Jasper Pulaski spending the entire winter, which they just never did before. Now that the mechanical harvesting is much more efficient and they leave fewer seeds in the fields, is there adequate feed for all these birds? I've been worried about that too. So far, the answer seems to be yes. The cranes are still attracted in the same way to the the same range of fields. But I suspect as the harvest gets more and more efficient that that could become a problem. There's another associated problem, and that is that not cranes, but some of the birds that we find in the winter and early spring in our fields, Lapland longspurs, snow buntings, Smith's longspurs is a, is a specialty in west central Indiana. They're feeding on grass and weed seeds, and as we use more herbicides to eliminate things like foxtail in our fields, then there just isn't the food for those birds. So it's it's getting hard for us to find some of those other species. But that's not a climate change thing. That That's a agricultural practice. Is there a mismatch between the migration and the emergence of insects for some of those smaller bird species? So this is another effect of climate change that's being studied really pretty well now in a variety of places across North America and also in Europe. They're worried about the same thing. Our migratory systems are set up so that birds passing through on the way to their breeding grounds hopefully can find enough food to give them energy for each step of migration. This is really well studied with a number of shorebird species that go to places like Delaware Bay and Chesapeake Bay and feed on the eggs of horseshoe crab, horseshoe crabs, and their spring migration is timed just so they hit the peak of that horseshoe crab egg laying and they get tons of food that way. We think the same thing happens with our migratory songbirds here. And in this case, we're mostly worried about the long distance migrants, the ones that are coming from South America or Central America or Mexico, as opposed to short-distance migrants that are maybe just coming from the southern United States. These long-distance migrants time their migration by using changes in day length. Actually, it's the length of the nighttime that is kicks in their hormones to migrate. That's something that doesn't change, and over the centuries was a reliable cue as to when is the appropriate time to move north. As our winters have become milder and milder, and our springs have started earlier and earlier, then things like tree leaf out has started earlier and earlier. When that happens, then timing the beginning of migration based on day length isn't as reliable a cue. Up here in the West Lafayette area, in the early days of May, what we notice is that when oak trees start to unfurl their leaves, when the buds break and those young leaves start out, that's when enormous numbers of insects try to feed on those leaves. The oaks don't put in all of the secondary chemical compounds that protect their leaves for the first couple of days. It takes them a while, and and that makes those leaves vulnerable. When the birds are migrating through, they really hit those young oak leaves to feed on those insects. They really target the large numbers of insects that can be found at that time. Well, as the leaf out comes earlier and earlier, then those vulnerable leaves and therefore the biggest insect populations are now occurring before the pulse of our long-distance migrants move through. And by the second week of May, when we typically have our big days to go out one day on a weekend and try to count as many birds as we can, the trees are already completely leafed out in in many cases. And that means we see fewer migrants. It also means there's less food for the migrants. So there's a real worry that there's a disconnect between the timing of migration 
and the cues the birds are using and when the the best pulse of food for them. I've been speaking with Dr. John Deming. He is a professor of wildlife ecology at Purdue University. Thank you very much for your comments. Looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the blue spotted salamander. The blue spotted salamander is a mole salamander native to the Great Lakes region and the Northeast U.S. They are between three to five and a half inches in length, of which the tail comprises 40%. Their skin is bluish-black with blue and white flecks on its back and bluish-white spots on the sides and tail. They are long and slender with long toes. They can be found in moist, deciduous hardwood forests and swampy woodlands. Underbrush, leaf litter, rock, and logs are commonly used for shelter. They feed on spiders, centipedes, slugs, and earthworms. To defend itself, the blue-spotted salamander lashes its tail back and forth, producing a noxious secretion from two glands at the base of its tail. If the predator gets past this defense, the salamander's tail will detach, and the predator is left with a writhing tail while the salamander zips off to safety. In time, its tail will grow back. It is endangered, and it is illegal to kill or collect this species. The main threat to the species is the loss of its forest habitats due to logging and road building. Acid rain may also be a potential threat. Also, the temporary ponds the blue-spotted salamander requires for breeding are often altered by dredging, filling in, or by added predatory fish. You've been listening to In Nature.
This week in our listening area, hike to the Yellowwoods at Brown County State Park on Saturday, January 12th from 11 a.m. to noon. Take a journey into Ogle Hollow Nature Preserve and see the work being done to help the Yellowwood trees. This is a moderate hike, including stairs. Dress for the weather. There will be a Winter Freeze Tree ID hike on Sunday, January 13th, from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Learn how differences in bark, buds, growth habits, and even scent helps identify trees during winter when there are no leaves. Dress for the weather. Meet at the boathouse. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series will continue on Saturday, January 19th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to begin the hike along a one-mile stretch on the park road. Then you will trek into the woods for an off-trail, rugged, and steep hike to Deserter's Cave. Dress for the weather and bring a hiking stick. A winter rock garden program will take place at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, January 19th, from 1 to 2.45 p.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn for a rugged stroll and to learn about plants like mosses, lichens, ferns, bryophytes, and more. A lunar eclipse hike will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, January 20th. It will begin with an informational session at 7 p.m. At 9.36 p.m., the eclipse will start. Learn more about the total eclipse at the Lakeview Activity Center before taking a one-hour hike along multiple, sometimes rugged, trails. Dress for the weather and bring a hiking stick. And that wraps, up, that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003, and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Wes Martin, Linda Green, and Norm Holy. This week's mm. In Nature was written by Juliana Daly. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Brower, and Wes Martin edited the script. Norm Holy produced our feature. Kirsten Payton edited our feature. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and Get Out and Hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. 
a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically-inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.